Hey, this is Nathan Dawkin from Fantrax HQ, as well as the Nasty Cast and Fantrax Dynasty Baseball Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 140, Best Directors. Brian, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Come and talk to us on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM. That's where you'll reach Derek and at C McBrien. And McBrien is I-E-N for me. And popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, what's going on in pop culture in your world? Well, not a whole lot. um, You always have so many things that you do. Well, I've uh, I've been trying to take advantage of the nice weather and actually go outside and, and do stuff. I mean, as much as we can in the pool. But, at least. Well, for sure, yeah. uh, a little a little uh, out in the pool for sure. But um, one thing I have been doing is a friend of mine gave me a download of every Marvel comic book that's ever been published. He had a, a portable hard drive with all these comic books. I, I didn't ask where he got them. I don't know if he bought them or he got them illegally, but he's like, here, you can borrow this while we're uh, so these on are, lockdown. So these are the, the comics are like on the computer. Like you could just look at them yeah, on the computer. Yeah, they're like digital scans of okay. every Marvel comic okay. that's ever been made up until like two years ago because his database has Just the comics or his crazy magazine in there? Because if it is, I want them. Mm-hmm. I'll have to take a look. But, please uh, check for me, please. Yeah, so I've been going through and uh, it's been sort of like a walk down memory lane because a lot of them I just want to like see the covers and go, oh yeah, that's that one. Uh, and then I'm starting to like go through and read some of the issues here and there. So uh, it, it's it's becoming a lot of analysis paralysis where there's just so much stuff. I don't know where to begin, but I got to just, I've been reading random issues here and there. And uh, so I think I just need to put together a list and go, okay, I want to start with X-Men comics, or I want to start with Avengers comics, or I want to start with, uh, uh, you know, something more recent, or I want to go back to uh, Amazing Spider-Man number one, or whatever it might be. So it's, uh, it's, it's really um, taken my attention away from things like movies and, and television. Not that we got a lot of new movies or television to, to choose from right now. Uh, one, one thing, so, I'm, I'm a real old school kind of guy, as you know, and, and as, as, Great as it sounds to have digital copies of all these comic books, isn't there's something to be said for the visceral experience of like touching a comic book, flipping the pages, how the cover is different from the the, the paper stock inside, the smell of it, the look of yeah. it. Am I just old school or like to me? That's what I love about comic books: touching them and feeling them and flipping the pages. And well, that's certainly a part of it uh, for me. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect of it. And and earlier this year. Uh, well, I guess even into last year, I was uh, going through my own personal comic cl- comic book collection, which is massive, and I'm trying to pare down a bit. I thought, okay, I know some websites where I can sell old comic books or put them up for auction. So I went through my collection. I pulled out a bunch of stuff that I feel I could live without or things maybe where I purchased multiple issues and thought, why the hell did I buy two of these? And 
just like you said, as I was going through them, I would stop and I would open them up and I would be like, <laughs> okay, oh, I remember yeah. this. And you would like see the advertisements and yep. and it wasn't even just the comic book. It was like the ad on the back or, mm-hmm. or ads on the inside or you'd open it up and there'd be like the – they always did the Stan soapbox where Stan Lee would do a little editorial in the middle of uh, of every issue. There'd be like a you know the monthly editorial. Just those little things. It was almost like a walk down memory lane. It, that was almost more nostalgic than the comic book itself. And so that's the thing I'm missing with these digital files is, yes, I can see the covers and I can see the art and I can read the stories. And so that is certainly positive. It makes it easy. Excuse me. I don't have to worry about damaging my my mint condition, whatever comic book by pulling it out of the case and touching it with my greasy fingers. I could just read the digital and be good with it. But yeah, you really it, you, you miss the smell. You miss the feel mm. of the newsprint. You miss the I, I personally I really like the ads. I mean, it's, it, it's bummed out that there are ads, but the fact that they're there. That is part of the experience that I've always had. So when they were when they've been removed for these digital copies, it almost feels like it's missing a little something. Like so. sea monkeys and stuff like that. Remember those? Or, well, and I remember they did like um, they would always there would be like you could send away for stuff and there would be movie posters and there would be like um, I think it was the hostess pies and cupcakes and they did a whole yeah, thing. Yeah, the fruit pies. Like, yeah. Fruit pies. That was it. They did like a whole thing in like the early 80s where they were promoting Dungeons and Dragons and hostess fruit pies and there was like these like a serialized set of commercials that would appear every couple of months again it's just these little stupid things where you'd look at it even for products you ever never ever had any intention of buying you'd see ads for old video games that i was not interested in but it's like oh i remember this ad for double dragon in this copy of x-men and yeah so i remember ads for to try they were trying to get you to sell a newspaper called grit and if you sold the newspaper and you sold so many of them, then you would, would get so many points and you could get things like a sleeping bag or a radio or a baseball bat or something like that. Did you ever read comics that had grit in it? I remember I remember ads for things like that where they would be like – they'd show you a, a cassette radio or a sleeping bag. When you said yeah, sleeping bag, I was yeah, like, oh. It was so grit, I probably yeah. never clued into how that worked because the right. ad didn't really appeal to me. Right. But sure enough, if I'm going through those issues tomorrow – the actual paperback issues and I see those ads, that would be part of the yeah. nostalgia trigger for me. So I would get yeah, sort of, sorry. The other ad I remember too was for, um, I think it was called fruit stripe gum and had a zebra and all these colors. Yeah. on the gum. Remember those? Oh, all those yeah. ads were so good. Again, some of the products they advertised were available only in the U S. So as right. a Canadian reading these, these comic books, some of the things were like, I don't know what this is. Or even if I'm like, this sounds really great. It wasn't anything I could uh, I could ever get. But I gave other- – so, sorry. I gave all my comic books to my son who is now 11 and I bought him new ones since. Like not new, new ones, old comic books since. So he looks at all the ads as well. And we were at a flea market oh, about two years ago and we found this vendor of like candy. But they were – it was an unusual, it was like almost like a throwback retro candy store and they had fruit stripe gum in it. And he was like, Daddy, look at, they got the fruit stripe gum from the comics. I want to get that. So I bought him a packet. So he thought <laughs> it was fantastic. just great. <laughs> yeah. So even he likes it. Nice. The I'm other, uh, the other thing, the only other sort of pop culture things going on in my world right now is um, one of my favorite shows that's on right now is, is a cartoon called Rick and Morty. I think we've talked about a little bit on some of the previous episodes of our show. Uh, have you ever seen the Rick and Morty cartoon? Are you familiar with the, at least the title? I have. I'm familiar. I have not seen the show. I'm familiar with it because I remember Yancey used to mention it. Well, Yancey's got good taste. Yeah. So, yeah. But no, I've never uh, seen it. I've heard of it, though. Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
the uh, the show is currently just finished its fourth season, which uh, it was something like a year and a half between seasons three and four. The show is notoriously slow to put out new material, but the last uh, of, of 10 new episodes just aired in the last week. So, of course, some of the channels uh, are rerunning all the old episodes, like every night you get a new episode. So this week... They're going through the season three episodes, and they basically, uh, over the last three nights, were three of my all-time favorite episodes in a row. Uh, because, again, they're just showing them chronologically in the order they came out. It was, for those people who watched the cartoon, it was the Mad Max episode, the Pickle Rick episode, and the Vindicators episode, which are three of my all-time favorites. It's just, by like, by, with most shows... The first season, it's always a little shaky because the show doesn't really know what it is and they're not sure if they're going to get picked up for a second season. So there's always a little bit of growing pains. Then if they get picked up, okay, second season, sometimes the quality dips because the creators are like, oh my God, they picked us up. Well, what are we possibly going to do? And then by the third season, they usually get into a rhythm. And I mean, Star Trek The Next Generation is a perfect example of this. Uh, Rick and Morty, I think, was pretty strong all the way through, but by season three, they really hit their stride. In, in my opinion, season three has has some of the strongest episodes but so getting these one two three this week every night it's just it's been gold so yeah anyway that's my pop culture for the week what about you uh, a couple you oh, a couple things so one thing i wanted to mention was podcast related so last week we dropped our first best of pop culture world podcast which just featured the trivia segments at the end but there was episode one two three and four going way back to I guess four, four years ago now, I guess it was when we first started doing that. So that was kind of neat. Uh, but something happened the other night. I woke up in the middle of the night and I just I couldn't get back to sleep for whatever reason. So I'm laying there and I'm wide awake. So I put on the TV and I started looking through the Roku channels because I got a Roku stick on my right. TV. I think it might have been the Tubi app. I, I can't remember for sure. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I found a documentary called The 50 Worst Movies of All Time. So wow. I was like, oh okay. man, I gotta watch this. So I watched, I sat up, watched the whole thing, and the thing was, there was three movies on the list that I actually like. <laughs> I'm, like I'm like, I like those movies. Why are they on the worst? Ishtar was on the list, which you know, no I love. kidding, yeah, which I love. That Howard the Duck was on the list, terrible, and Xanadu. So they all made the list, but I actually like those movies. And I figured for sure, I sat up, I watched the whole thing right to the end. It was about two hours long. And when I got to the number one movie, I figured for sure the worst movie would be Plan 9 from Outer Space. Have you ever heard of that yeah. one? The one uh, I haven't oh, seen it, but oh, I have so heard bad. of it. Oh, it's so terrible. It's so, but it wasn't the worst movie. I It was on the list. I think it was maybe like four or five or something on the list. It was close. But... Um, you know, I, I can't remember exactly where it fell. I don't know. It was it was late. But the worst movie ever made, according to this documentary, was a horror musical from 1964 called The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies. Have you ever heard of that one? That's the whole title. That's the whole title of the film. Uh, no, I've yeah. never heard it. Anyway. I have I have fell asleep before you even finished reading it. It was so long. Yeah, it was just uh, so. It was just I guess a terrible, terrible horror musical. What can you expect? Um, it, but it got me thinking. We should definitely do this as a topic on a future podcast. Worst movies of all time. I think it would be fun. Yeah, sure. I mean, we could always just do movies, or maybe even like movies we don't like that are actually really popular or that other people might enjoy that. That could be a good take on it. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. let's kick around the idea. We certainly figure it out. We certainly make will. it work. Now, before we get into uh, our topic this week, I am the embarrassing old man with my dad jokes. So here's your dad joke of the week. Now, since we're doing best directors this week, here it is. Derek, 
how many movie directors does it take to screw in a light bulb? Uh, I don't know. One. Four. Okay. But the last one has to be M. Night Shyamalan to give it a twist at the end. Oh, my God. I am a super nerd. Dude, I don't know how you didn't get more girls in high school. Or guys, for that matter. I got nobody. (laughs) Nothing. You're a caveman. Just clump them over the head and drag them off. Oh, my, my, my. And I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. You're not a nerd. Women love Well, yeah, they do, but they're all nerdy women. So The Fawns is 73 years old. Raiders of the Lost Ark is basically Steven Spielberg giving a master's class on how to make a movie. I found a Fonzie shirt that I want (laughs) for Christmas. And my wife was like, you're not getting that. Can I finish? Can I finish? (laughs) Okay, I finished. Uh, okay, so this week we decided we would uh, tackle the topic of best directors. Now, I guess we should put some parameters on this. It's We don't want to just go with the textbook answers like we normally do on the show. We like to mention our personal favorites when we talk about directors. And you had mentioned uh, this is a potential topic for a little while now. You said, I really want to talk about directors and let's put together a list of who our favorite directors of all time are. So we decided uh, to go ahead and do it this week. So we're going to talk about uh, best directors, at least from a personal perspective. So, uh, so Derek, do you want to take things away? We'll do our top five list starting at five, working our way up to number one to our favorite best director. Uh, who do you got at number five? Or do you have any honorable mentions you want to mention first? How do you want to do this? Uh, let's just jump right in. I okay. Think, so um, uh, just a little bit about, about the process. So exactly like you said, mm-hmm. not necessarily, uh, you know, textbook answer of who is the technically the best, who made the most money, who has the most awards, who made the most movies, all that kind of thing. Although there are definitely a few of those on my list. Um, I found that for the top three, I really had no problem. I'm like, these are my top three, no question. It was everyone after that. I had a list of 10 or 15 directors and I mm-hmm. found it was really difficult to narrow it down without putting a little bit more uh, sense of direction on sort of what are my criteria to do this. And and it wasn't until about an hour before we started recording this that I actually decided that, yes, this is my number four and, yes, this is my number five. And the other ten on my list, I'm like, they're all great, but uh, you got to draw the line somewhere. So with that, uh, I'll, I'll spoil it a little. My number my four and my number five are both – sort of textbook answers my top three i think are less textbook answers so my number five textbook answer Mm -hmm. robert zemeckis oh okay i don't don't know if that that would be textbook that's that's interesting good 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 so we gotta talk uh, about this one yeah yeah okay so i mean for those who maybe are not as familiar with his work or like hey i sort of i've heard of that guy so best known for movies like back to the future who famed roger rabbit Forrest Gump, for which he won Best Directing Oscar, uh, Contact, Castaway. Uh, you know, he's got a, a tremendous filmography, uh, a lot of really big, successful Hollywood movies, and uh, works with big names. I mean, he's worked with Tom Hanks a number of times. He's worked with, uh, uh, well, again, I could I could rhyme down the list, but I'm not going to because I don't have it in front of me. Um, but one of the things I liked about Zemeckis, other than the fact that he knows how to make an entertaining movie, is um, he always seems to be uh, um, on the edge of of what's trending. Uh, I, I like to think of it as he's not necessarily a George Lucas type who's going to go out and create the technology, but he's going to use the tools available maybe in a way that they haven't been used before and sort of push the envelope. So you certainly had some special effects work in Back to the Future, which was great, 1985. But as we already did a previous podcast on Who Famed Roger Rabbit, where you have the interaction between 
live action and animation. And it's not just, okay, once animation comes on the screen, everybody stop moving. It's like, no, you had actual interaction and you, you believe that these 3D animated characters were actually on the screen with, um, with the, the live actors. And you got to think this was before a lot of computer animation was done. So it was a lot of like old school animation. Then a couple of years. So but you didn't really the, like it that much. I remember I, I didn't like it, but I can appreciate its technical merit. Um, then in 1994, a few years later, he does Forrest Gump. Well, again, you've got the, the that's when we start using a lot more special effects with the computer. And it's like you have the character of Forrest Gump um, going through major historical moments where he's using technology to interact and intersplice, if you will, real people and real scenes with fictional characters. So like he has Forrest Gump meet. John F. Kennedy. And he uses like real footage of Kennedy with slight alterations so that the mouth syncs up to the new dialogue and, uh, you know, things like that. Um, uh, a few years later, he does contact again, taking advantage of some of the special effects work. He has uh, um, a scene where Clinton, Bill, uh, Bill Clinton, the president at the time, uh, is giving a speech. And again, he sort of co-ops some of it. Um, 2000, he does Castaway with Tom Hanks, where you basically take one of the world's most popular and gifted actors and you put him on screen by himself for like 90 minutes. Like that doesn't happen in a big Hollywood movie. Uh, that's a huge risk and it paid off. The movie was great. It was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. It's like Zemeckis knows how to tell a movie, tell a story, make a movie. He's, he's got a good eye for casting and he, it seems like he really knows when and how to take chances and, and has had a tremendous amount of success in those chances. Um, any case, let me turn it to you. What do you think, Robert Zemeckis? Give me your two cents on it. So I like his, or obviously this is going to be no surprise. I like his early work better, obviously. I like the fact that he was, uh, he directed Romancing the Stone. I really like that movie a lot. And the funny thing was, is that he was actually directing Cocoon. The movie. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, and so so he was hired to direct it. He's you know, and he was all ready to go. And when the studio, the producers saw the dailies, and I think when they saw the work that he had done on *Romancing the Stone* before it was released, they hated it so much they fired him from *Cocoon*. And Ron Howard ended up coming into that. And *Romancing the Stone* went on to be you know a pretty good hit. At least it pretty became a hit, cult yeah. favorite. Anyway, I mean, I like it. But like, I would say, yeah, I like his earlier stuff better. I've never been a huge fan of *Forrest Gump*. I know. That sounds kind of bad, but I mean, his earlier stuff, Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and all that stuff. I think once he's, he made Death Becomes Her, I didn't really like that movie. It didn't do very well. And then after that, like I said, I didn't really enjoy Contact and and um, and Forrest Gump and that kind of stuff. So I would say his earlier work, but he was, he was a very good director. I don't know. I thought he was pretty good. Yeah, and I mean, uh, in his uh, his later works, like he hasn't been as prolific uh, over the last ten or fifteen years. I mean, he's getting older. Yeah, he's older. But, yeah, um, right? he's almost. You know, 70. he did uh, he did two animated films, The Polar Express and Beowulf, both of which involved like early motion capture technology, yep. where it it looked very realistic, and it was in, in many cases like the the images of real actors in the in the cartoons. So again, that was. Two examples of movies where he was taking advantage of the technology that was there. He wasn't building it himself. He wasn't funding it. It was like, let's take advantage of these tools to tell a certain kind of story that 
that you couldn't tell otherwise. And his uh, his movie Flight from 2012 with Denzel Washington about the alcoholic pilot, although it has a, a lot of slower parts in it, the scenes with the airplane at like the first 45 minutes, the whole part where the airplane is in distress and it goes upside down, it's like that that whole sequence just blows me away. Every time if I see that movie in the lineup, I'm like I'm watching this first 45 minutes. It's he he really he really has an eye for how to how to do this. I'm I'm a big fan of his work. Awesome. Okay, so my number 5, I'm going with an obscure one. Now, first of all, I should mention uh, maybe an honorable mention before I get into this. Sure. John Hughes I did not put on my list. And I Really? Yeah. He's not your number 1. I know. No. Even when I was I mentioned my wife says to me tonight, "Oh, you're going down to record your podcast. What are you doing?" I said, "Best directors, our favorite director She's like, oh, John Hughes is one of your favorites, isn't he? I said, he didn't make the list. She's like, what? Um, He captures that teenage spirit. I feel like in that that angst, like no director ever has. He just he tapped into something that no directors have been able to do since or even did before. And he was an important director, too, because I feel that he defined a generation. So I think he's really, really important. But I went with uh, some other ones on my list. As you mentioned, um, we're not doing a textbook list. I mean, if it was textbook, I'd be mentioning, you know, Bergman and Kurosawa and Eisenstein and Jean-Luc Godard and people like that. And I didn't do that. Uh, definitely didn't do that with my number five. So I'm going with a, uh, a bit of a personal favorite. And I'm going to explain why. And that's Herschel Gordon Lewis. Okay. Oh, Chris, I have him on my list. <laughs> I, I have no I idea who that is. I've never heard of him. So let me tell you why I've put Herschel Gordon Lewis on my list. I think it was in 1990, if I remember correctly. I went to this Toronto horror film convention. My best friend at the time was a horror movie fanatic. Loved horror movies. And so he was like, you gotta, you're got you a big movie buff. You got to go to this convention with me. No one else wants to go. Okay. So we went to this horror film convention. And it was great. I met Tracy Walter. I don't know if you know him. He's a little actor. But then Tom Savini. And I got a chance to talk to Tom Savini. I was really crafty when I was there because a lot of people would get in line to meet these people. And there'd be like a line that's like a mile long. I thought, I'm not getting in that line. And um, what I would do is I would wait and then just find them later, like in the back of a theater or something like that. And I'd corner them and like just talk to them, you know, and then they, then they'd be willing to talk. And uh, Ron Oliver was a Canadian director that I had this major uh, argument with. I got into an argument. He went on stage and was talking about, he was bad mouth in Spielberg and saying, ah, Spielberg and E.T. What the hell is that stupid movie? And so I got a chance to talk to him. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And then him and his buddies, they started to like, you know, get up in my grill and they were like, what do you mean? Spielberg, he, he wrote E.T. He was in the, he was in a basement and he's all depressed. I said, that's the whole point of the movie. It's about being alone and not having a friend and finding someone else. It's a friend. Like, anyway, we had a big argument and, but Herschel Gordon Lewis, um, Again, there was this big lineup. Everybody wanted to see Herschel Gordon Lewis. And I didn't want to get in line and see him. And my friend was the biggest Herschel Gordon Lewis fan of all time. And then they did a screening of his 1964 movie, 2000 Maniacs. And I saw him in the back of the theater. So I went over and I said, you know, Mr. Lewis, uh, how's it going? Do you want to talk? And he was like, yeah. And so I talked to him at length for the whole length of the movie. And he was very kind and he could see that I was a huge movie buff. And he was really happy to just sit there and talk to me about his movies. And I remember I asked him, 
I said, what's your favorite movie that you directed? And, and, and we talked about that and we talked and he mentioned it was 2000 Maniacs. That was the one that was on. And we talked about how he had low budgets and how he did some of his special effects. It was so cool. The stories he was telling me. And the thing is he had a reputation for only making movies in order to make money. And the thing is, for those of you, if you don't know Herschel Gordon Lewis, he is sort of the godfather of gore. Right. Like he made these gory, low budget movies. And like I say, he, he had this reputation of just just he just wanted to make movies just to make money, not just not for the sake of making movies. I want to make make some cash. And obviously he was getting paid to be at the convention, but he didn't have to spend two hours at the back of a theater talking to me about movies. But that's just what he did. And I found him to be very kind. He was an engaging guy. And he. Still, it was funny. He still found it kind of interesting that people were talking about his movies 30 years after he made them. So a little bit about his movies. So in 1963, he released Blood Feast, which was basically the first ever gore film that was ever made. And then in 1964, he made 2000 Maniacs. And then he followed that the next year with Color Me Blood Red. And then his final movie was pretty much 1970s The Wizard of Gore. And it featured a magician who would cut up his assistants on stage. You know, instead of the old saw the woman in half trick, like he would really saw her in half. And like it was just gory stuff, right? But it's not just that I got to meet him and talk to him for so long about movies and movie making and all that stuff. Um, although that certainly has helped to, you know, to endear him to me over the years. But here's the thing. Even if you're not a huge fan of his movies, and to be perfectly honest, I'm not actually a huge fan of his work. I'm not a big fan of gore movies. It's not my, really my type of film. But I think the best directors are those that are innovative and those that are trailblazers. And Herschel Gordon Lewis basically invented a whole genre of film, which was the gore film. And if it wasn't for him, there would never have been the slasher movies of the 70s and the 80s. So for those reasons... I think he's a true original, and he makes my list at number five. All of what you just said was news to me. Mm. I'd never heard of him. Yeah, it's I'd good. never heard of any of those movies. I'm not a big fan of the horror genre. I'm certainly not a fan of the slasher movie or the what did you call it the the blood movie or the I don't gore know, the gore, gore film. movie. That's yeah, it. yeah, no. Not, 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 not in my wheelhouse at all. So it's not really in uh, mine either. But like I say, the fact that he basically created this and did it on such a low budget. I think there's something something to be said for that. I'm a huge movie buff, and I love film, and the fact that he was kind of a trailblazer is just, I think it's important to me. So All right. for that reason, I've always been uh, been a fan of his. So. Right in his corner. Okay, yeah. well, fair yeah. enough. And the fact that I got to meet him and talk to him for so long. It was, it was a great experience. There you go. Yeah. All right. Okay, on to your uh, number four. Who do you got? Uh, my number four. Uh, you know what? Before I go to number four, you had asked me before I did my number five about honorable mentions, and I said, nah. And then when you were talking, I thought, I should probably make a quick honorable mention. Sure. So before who do you, I go to my number four, yeah. I'm going to give an honorable mention to John Favreau. Okay. Okay. So yeah. Favreau, uh, for those who, uh, again, uh, may or may not be as familiar with him, uh, he made his debut as an actor in the movie Swingers, which he wrote or co-wrote. Uh, they wouldn't let him direct it because he didn't have any experience uh but not long after that he he started directing as as well as acting uh he directed the movie elf which is on every christmas uh fantastic film he directed the first iron man movie and the second iron man movie and arguably is is one of the godfathers of what is now the marvel cinematic universe um he has um he directed and helped create the mandalorian star wars 
series. Mm-hmm. He is. He was on uh, Friends. Remember, he wanted to be the. Yeah. He was the rich I mean, guy. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So yeah. He, he was. He started as an actor. Yeah. yeah. He makes appearances in, in in many of his movies. Like in Iron Man, he uh, he plays the um, Happy Hogan, the the driver slash bodyguard slash butler kind of guy. Um, and uh, he's obviously got a very positive working relationship with uh, with Walt Disney Pictures. He did the remake of The Lion King in the last few years. Like he has had a tremendous amount of success. And at this point, I got to think he could pretty much write his own ticket to do whatever he wants. And um, I think that for uh, for many years to come, the the projects of Jean Favreau are going to have a lasting impact on uh, on pop culture. So I think even though he didn't make my top five, uh, I think I think he deserves to be on the list. OK, so. Yeah, okay. that's cool. So. Now, uh, we're going to go to a number four who a lot of people are going to say, how is this guy number four and not number one? And more importantly, how can three people be even in front of this guy? Number four, James Cameron, arguably one of the most successful directors ever in terms of box office, uh, Avatar, Titanic, Terminator, like he made so much money. These movies, these movies have generated so much money. It's, it's insane. And he's Canadian Uh, too. Uh, indeed he is. Yep. So, <clears throat> I mean, you look, at, yep. you look at sort of the best of the best of what he's got here. He goes Terminator 1, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, True Lies, Titanic, Avatar, and he's working on uh, sequels to Avatar, uh, part two of which is supposed to come out next year. But obviously in light of uh, COVID and shutdowns and such, I suspect that'll be delayed again. And, uh, and sorry, don't forget, he got to start with Piranha 2, The Spawning. Yeah, well, we're, well you know. That wouldn't put him on the list. So, no. um, 1997, he puts out Titanic, <clears throat> the biggest movie ever. He wins yep. three Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Editing. Um, and part of his uh, his his um, much like Zemeckis with special effects, Cameron wants to tell a story in a certain way. But unlike Zemeckis, Cameron certainly has put his money where his mouth is to to help create the technology required to tell the story he wants to tell. He did it with Terminator 2 with the whole idea of the uh, the, the cyborg robot that could like morph the metal that could could go liquid and then mm-hmm. solid again. Like that was something that hadn't been done on screen before. And, and he worked to help create it. with the abyss even before that. Yes. The, the use of computers to do like the water monsters and the aliens and such. That was one uh, of the first CGI's that was ever really yeah. done effectively in film. He was a trailblazer yeah. too. Very credit. Very yeah, kind of good, good. And then then Titanic again, obviously this huge sweeping epic spectacle. Um, and this was like when he started really getting into personally, he started getting into more uh, thing. He wanted to know about the real Titanic and he started to uh, work and stuff like go underwater. He did like Titanic documentaries and he doesn't do another movie for, you know, 10 years. And the next yeah, he, he basically walked away from making movies, didn't he? While he explored yeah. the Titanic. So cool. Well, part, partly for that reason and partly because, again, if you if you read what what he's about and you believe everything, it's like he had this idea for Avatar about the time he was making Titanic, but he didn't feel the necessary technology existed to tell the story in a way that he felt was suitable. And so he had to both wait for technology to improve and work with people to create the technology so that he could tell the story he wanted to tell. And then you get Avatar, which unseats Titanic as the number one best movie ever as far as box office. Uh, you know, again, he he maybe hasn't made as many movies as some of the other directors on our lists, but when he makes a movie, it's a, it's an event. It's a spectacle. You hear someone say, there's a new James Cameron movie coming out. You're like, I'm there. What day does it start? I'm all in. And all you got to do is look at his track record. Like this guy knows how to make a movie. He's uh, arguably 
should be at the number one on some of the, like some people would absolutely put him at number one. And I don't mm. think that that's, uh, that's necessarily wrong, but for me personally, he absolutely makes my top five. I put him in at number four. Um, yeah. Chris, what do you think? James Cameron? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's a good one. Like I say, he's Canadian. Uh, the fact that I love the movie Piranha from 1978. Love it. And the fact that he basically started his feature film directorial uh, career doing Piranha Part 2, The Spawning, where the Piranha actually had wings and flew through the air and then bit people. Gotta love that. But I mean, Terminator was just so, so good. Now, he made Aliens, which I didn't love, as you know, here on the show. But T2, Judgment Day was so good. That was a big turning point. That's when he just went into the stratosphere and then obviously titanic and the thing was titanic was supposed to bomb it went so over budget it was about a uh, a movie about uh, a ship that sinks i mean all the metaphors were there for it to bomb you know what happens in the movie you know what the ending is what a crappy movie and it ended up being fantastic and blew everybody away and he never looked back you know it just kind of made him a, a directorial god i think it's a great pick yeah, and I think what I found with with most of the directors on my list, especially the ones coming up next, is the directors I seem to enjoy the work of the most are often the directors that have a, a strong hand in creating the story itself, if not writing the story, at least be maybe often having a, a writing credit or story by so and so. And I think that's one of the things about Cameron that uh, that I've really enjoyed is is you know Terminator was his idea. It's like he had the idea, he sold the studio for a buck on the condition that he could direct it. Uh, you know, he comes up with the obviously the sequel T two. He comes up with uh, Avatar, like you know he's got a, a firm hand in creating the 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 story and creating the characters and creating the world it's he, he really has a, a creative eye and that certainly carries forward into his directing so. the best directors are great storytellers and that, we'll touch base on that i'm sure as we get absolutely you know, up absolutely all right my all number right. yeah sorry my number four John Landis, personal favorite of mine. So what can i say John Landis directed some of my favorite comedies of all time there's the Kentucky Fried Movie Back in 77, he made Animal House in 78, The Blues Brothers, Trading Places, Spies Like Us, Coming to America. And he also directed the horror film An American Werewolf in London in 81. Uh, he co-directed movies like Twilight Zone the movie and Amazon Women on the Moon. Twilight Zone the movie almost killed his career, you know, after um, Vic Morrow was killed mm -hmm. in that, that uh, helicopter accident and that, as well as uh, two children. Um, but he was able to you know, kind of bounce back a little bit and you know, still make trading places and those kind of movies. He directed the greatest music video of all time. We mentioned that a couple weeks ago with Michael Jackson's Thriller video. The guy's legacy in Hollywood is set. And yep. for me, much like Herschel Gordon Lewis, John Landis created a whole genre of film himself. It's what I call the epic comedy. Because his comedies weren't just comedies. They were bigger than life. The Blues Brothers had these epic car chases and these crashes, and he would use classical music in his movie scores. His films were bigger than life. And then, funny enough, one day, he just lost it. It was like his talent was just gone. I, I, I don't know why. I, I think a lot of his earlier work was fueled by, he had this hyperkinetic energy and this personality. Maybe, perhaps, I don't know, maybe fueled by drug use, who knows. But when he got a little bit older, I don't know, maybe he just didn't have that same hyper energy that he had earlier. And so things just kind of fizzled out. But regardless, he directed some of my favorite comedies of all time. He's an absolute legend to me. So he's number four on my list. 
when you said previously your honorable mention was um, uh, John Hughes. Hughes. Yeah. John Hughes. I thought for a second you were saying John Landis. And I was like, how did, and then I'm like, oh, no, no, wait, that's the other John. So yeah. I'm glad this one made your list. I would have, been, if both of them had been left off, I would have been shocked. Yeah. Cause uh, it's me. It's me. And I love, of course, you know, it's I love you, of course. Guys, so, yeah. and, and I agree. I mean, uh, the, the movies you talked about are all great films. Um, uh, some I like more than others. We've done a few of them on the podcast already. We have. Uh, it, it, they, they, they really have staying power and they really helped, sh- uh, you know, shape movies of that time. So yeah, for sure. All right. So on to your number three, who do you got? All right. On to my number three. Well, I'm going to I'm going to excuse me, lean back on what I was just saying about how some of the best directors are also have a firm hand in in the creative process of writing the stories of Mm -hmm. what they do. My number three is Christopher Nolan. Okay, so Christopher Nolan, we uh, we already did a couple. You've done a couple of his movies on this podcast. We did Memento not too long ago, uh, which was his 2000 sort of big, big screen debut, Uh, although it wasn't his first film. It was his first film that was released like in theaters across the world. Right. Um, He did uh, the the reboot of the new Batman franchise. You guys, uh, you and Yancey talked about The Dark Knight. He did Inception, which you and Yancey have talked about. Or pardon me, uh, Interstellar, which you and Yancey have talked about as well. Um, So. Again, he 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 is very much responsible, in my mind, very much responsible for the resurgence and the or not the resurgence, but the surgence rather of the acceptance of comic book movies. So we have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is an unstoppable juggernaut that's happening right now. It's been going on for 10, 11, 12 years now, and it's the biggest franchise going anywhere, arguably bigger. Well, I mean, it's owned by Disney now, isn't it? Or no, I'm thinking Star Wars. Uh, yeah, Star Wars case. is, yeah. No, no, I think Star- Marvel, you said? Uh, is Marvel Disney now, too? Yeah, it is. Know, every, it's, it's on Disney Plus, Disney. so. Yeah, that's true. So, um, now, obviously, Batman is not Marvel, but the, Bat- the, the Batman story Christopher Nolan told. So, we had the Tim Burton version that came in 1989. There were four movies. Mm-hmm. And in, at, the, at the time, in the moment, they were great. People loved them. They did well in the box office. It was very accepted. But after a while, people were like, yeah, these are kind of cartoony and they're not really, you know, they're not really that great. Christopher Nolan comes along and in 2005, he puts out Batman Begins and he decides that I'm going to tell this story about Batman, but I'm going to make it a little more grounded and I'm going to try and figure out like if this was a real guy, how would this work? How do we tell a story? And although Batman Begins is an origin story, it's not told in a linear way. And we've already seen momentum. He's already played with that idea of let's tell a story in an unusual order where in Memento it's told backwards in Batman Begins. It's, it's all over the place. It's things are happening and then you get a flashback and then it's back to here and then it's over there. Um, so he, he, he creates an interesting visual story. It just happens to be a Batman story and it sets all sorts of crazy records. And then he puts out the dark Knight a few years later. And again, it's, it's one of the, up until that time, it is the most successful superhero movie. And again, it's very much grounded. It's not, you know, it's not Superman characters, not flying around. It's, this is in theory, a real guy who has a lot of money and has a lot of training who fights. Yeah. He fights villains who are real villains. He fights a a, a doctor who messes with chemistry. He fights a lunatic who wears white face makeup. You know, it's not the over the top, fantastical comic book cartoony. It's, it's very grounded in reality. It's very dark. It's very gritty. It's very violent, but it's all based in a reality. And he sort of opens the door to the casual viewer of saying, don't be freaked out because it says Batman. Just look at it as an interesting action adventure thriller kind of movie. And 
you get this tremendous financial success, this tremendous uh, acceptance by the you know the movie going world, that then Marvel is like. You know, let's let's see how this works for us. Let's pick a character that's not maybe our our flagship character. Let's go with someone like uh, Iron Man. Uh, let's see how he does. And the aforementioned John Favreau comes in. He does Iron Man. Sort of does that same idea as as Nolan did with Batman. And he's like, let's ground it in uh, you know as much reality as you can. And it's a huge hit because Christopher Nolan's already sort of opened that door a little bit. Um, and then of course uh, Nolan goes on to do Interstellar. Uh, Dunkirk, uh, you know, he does he starts picking up these these projects that are are bigger and more special effects and and broader stories. He does Inception in 2010 in between his part two and part three of his Batman, which is, again, like a real mess with your mind kind of movie. It's a story within a story within a story within a story. And it's like the rules are different. And it really it's a head scratcher. How does it end? Is this is this the real world or the dream world? And just the way he tells a story, he he. It, 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 very few of his movies are told in a linear fashion where it's A, B, C, D, E, F run credits. He really likes to play with that, uh, um, you know, the order of the way you don't necessarily have to tell a story from start to finish in order for it to be uh, to have a lot of impact. And in fact, by playing with the expectations, you can often drive home certain messages in a, in a in different and better way. So Christopher Nolan's my number three. He's he's uh, uh, got a new one coming out. It's supposed to be out this week, called, uh, this year rather, called Tenet. Again, it looks like another. It's it's sort of about time travel and stories are told in reverse time and and it's again. I'm trying not to know too much about it because I don't want to spoil it when I go and see it. But based on the two minute trailer, it looks like another real uh, mess with your mind kind of Christopher Nolan story, and I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I've never been a big fan of Christopher Nolan. I've mentioned that here on the podcast before. But the one thing I think you don't want to forget, you mentioned that uh, the Dark Knight was at the time one of the the most popular comic book movie ever made. But when it came out in 2008. It, it rocked all the way up to number two all time. It was behind Titanic yeah. as the number two grossing film of all time. It went crazy. Uh, so, you know, don't forget. But uh, just whatever. I don't like uh, Interstellar was the one Yancey maybe watched. I didn't like that one. All right. My number three. I'm going with Quentin Tarantino. The first film that I ever saw of his was his second film. And that was obviously Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Yep. And it's the only time I can remember sitting in a movie theater watching a film and being totally obsessed with whoever it was that directed this thing. I, I just seemed to be mesmerized by the movie when I saw it. And I just kept thinking, who the hell directed this? I, I don't think I've ever had that type of visceral reaction to a movie before or since. Pulp Fiction is the greatest American film since The Godfather. It ranks in the top five greatest American films ever made. I mean, it's up there with Citizen Kane, and The Godfather, and There Will Be Blood, as far as I'm concerned. So for that movie alone, Tarantino would probably make my list. But no, he's got a bunch of other amazing movies, too. I saw Reservoir Dogs after I saw Pulp Fiction, and I absolutely loved it when I saw it. Uh, I know a lot of people didn't love Jackie Brown. I thought it was great. I liked um, it, too. I, I love that he continued to cast actors that were really good, but that some people just kind of sort of forgot about. You know, he did that with John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. He did it again uh, with uh, in Jackie Brown with Robert Forster and Pat, Pam Greer. Uh, the Kill Bill movies were amazing. I love Django Unchained. It was so good. Tarantino has this way of reinventing older film genres, but somehow making them 
seem like they're fresh or almost like he's created them himself. At, at, at the very least, he breathes new life into those genres. So three major things always come to my mind when I think of Tarantino. One, uh, it's obvious the guy loves movies. You know, he understands different genres. He obviously grew up watching blaxploitation films and westerns and violent action movies and kung fu films and that sort of thing. Um, and he incorporates his love of movies into his movie making. No question. So that's one thing. Number two, he this guy is an incredible writer of dialogue. The dialogue in his films just jump off the screen. The opening scene in Reservoir Dogs... When the guys, the, the camera pans around and they're talking about tipping waitresses and what the true meaning of like a virgin is supposed to be, his dialogue is just so good. And, and it's often injected with a, a love of pop culture because he mentions the Madonna song. And I remember Jules mentions Fonzie in Pulp Fiction. Uh, so I think he's a great writer as well as a director. And the third thing, and maybe the most important thing about Tarantino is the violence in his movies. He's received tons of criticism over the years for glorifying violence in his movies but although his films are violent he, i argue he does not glorify violence and, and and i'll give you examples for that so for me traditional hollywood movies glorify violence way more than tarantino does how many times have we seen a movie with someone like arnold schwarzenegger in it where he cuts off some guy's arm and then he just drops the line he'll say now they call you lefty ha ha you know, like some throwaway, you know what I mean? Like there'll be some throwaway line. To me, that glorifies violence because there's no consequences to the violence. It's just violence for the sake of violence. But in Tarantino films, the violence always has consequences. When Mr. Blonde cuts off the cop's ear in Reservoir Dogs and the camera, it pulls away. We don't even see it happen. It goes yeah. and looks up in the corner. And yet if you ask anybody about that scene, the first thing they're going to tell you is just how terrifying, how bloody and gross it is. You don't see anything. But when we, but the thing is, we learn about the cop. Remember he tells Freddie, Tim Roth's character, yeah. he tells him, I'm a husband and I have a young daughter. We, like, we see his pain. So when people say that Tarantino is an irresponsible filmmaker, I argue it's the opposite. The guy loves movies. He knows movies. He can write movies. He can direct movies. He's number three on my list. Yeah, it, God, after, he's hearing, oh. after hearing this, I realized I, I absolutely just totally blanked on Tarantino. He should have been on my list. So God, I'm glad you good. got him yeah. on yours. Yeah, um, yeah that's why we back each other up. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, Pulp Fiction definitely is in my top three all time favorite movies ever. It is probably also in my top three movies I've seen the most ever. Um, and uh, you had mentioned his his gift for dialogue. Absolutely agree. I mean, he's won two Oscars for uh, for writing. Uh, one for for Pulp Fiction and yeah. one for Django Unchained, and mm -hmm. he's been nominated a bunch of other times. Um, personally, as much as I love Tarantino and I love his films and I love his dialogue, and in many cases, uh, even when he's got uh, a hand in writing or creating other projects, you can certainly feel the Tarantino influence. Uh, I haven't really been a big fan of his last and most more recent works. Uh, I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was was a great spectacle. Uh, Inglorious Bastards again, uh, very creative. But I, I'm not as big fan of this whole idea of I'm going to tell a story and reinvent history. It's like in both of those movies, once I understood that the ending was different from from reality and not just like, oh, I'm going to make up a guy to put him in a situation to help emphasize. It. It's like he he makes full on changes to this is what happened, but this is what I want to have happen in my movie um, in both 
both of those two movies I said, Inglourious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it sort of ruined it for me. Um, but his other films, um, Hateful Eight and Django Unchained uh, and Jackie Brown, you know, like, again, love them. Uh, and they definitely have the unique Tarantino style. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely. I, I'm, I'm glad he's on your list and – I'm glad he made number three ahead of another, whoever that number five guy was. Yeah, another 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 thing that, that I think is important for directors are those directors that are able to get really good performances out of their actors. And Tarantino seems to be able to do that. Uh, when you mentioned Inglorious Bastards, I'm always reminded of Christoph Waltz in the opening scene. When, oh. he, when he is giving the speech and, and, and he knows that the Jews are hidden underneath the floorboards. It's just, that's just his his performance is just so unbelievably off the charts, like and 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 then that's a lot of credit goes to the director for that too. The director pulls those performances out of actors, you know. But anyway, okay, on to your number two. What do okay, you my number two actually we can relate back to Tarantino in a second, and we'll get to that. So my number two. Mm-hmm. So if I told you I have a director in my number two spot whose last name is Scott, you're probably thinking Ridley Scott. We know you love Blade Runner. We know you love Alien. We know you love The Martian. Right. You'd be wrong. My number two is his brother, Tony Scott. Tony Scott. Okay. Tony Scott. Now, he he unfortunately is no longer with us. He committed suicide a number of years ago, Um, but he left uh, a fair amount of work. Uh, his his body work is uh, is fantastic. Uh, some of his movies are among my all time favorites. And let me tell you, if you want a great fast paced movie he's your man i mean he made top gun and he made beverly hills cop or part two pardon me beverly hills cop two days of thunder like um and his his last movie unstoppable about a runaway train so you got top gun days of thunder and unstoppable are all like these fast fast paced movies and his style is such that you feel like you're right on board with these movies. Uh, Unstoppable, when I remember hearing about the the premise of this one, it's like, oh, it's about a runaway train. And I'm thinking, okay, well, a train goes on tracks. Like, how hard is it to catch this runaway train? Like, it just, it sounded so dumb. And I've probably seen the movie 10 times. It's great. I can't stop watching it. Whenever it comes on, I'm like, this again? Okay, well, I know what I'm doing for the next 90 minutes. I'm watching the end of this movie. Um just something about his style. It, he he got his start doing commercials, specifically car commercials. And that is what opened the door for him for movies like Top Gun is the people who had the money and who were hiring directors looked at his work and said, look at how this guy films a car commercial in 30 seconds on a, on a flat television. He's getting the most out of these commercials for high performance cars. Like, think of what he could do if we gave him jets. Let's give him fighter jets and see what he does. And it's just like, oh my God. And then Days of Thunder, let's give him some NASCARs and see how he does it. It's like, this guy knows how to shoot a movie. Um, then you have True Romance, came out in 1993. So, this is our Tarantino connect- connection. So, Tarantino was one of the writers of the film True Romance, and uh, Tony Scott was the director. And let me tell you, True Romance feels very much like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, yes, again, it does. Because Tony Scott understands how to make a decent story, and I think he really connected with the the dialogue and the and the the story that Tarantino was telling. And you know, it's it's again, it's this this it's got like these shoot 'em ups and these action sequences. Uh, much like Beverly Hills Cop 2, where it's like they're, you know, you've got Axel Foley, you, he's running around and they're shooting up bad guys and stuff. It's like he knows how to do it. He knows how to pace a movie. Uh, one of my 
all-time favorite Tony Scott movies, probably my favorite Tony Scott movie, is called Man on Fire from 2004. It stars Denzel Washington. Chris, you and I are going to watch this on the podcast very soon. So if you don't have it on your computer, download it. You're going to need it soon. Man on Fire is one of my all-time favorites. And part of the reason – again, I don't want to step on it too much because if we are going to do it, we'll save some of it. But the way that Tony Scott tells this story with – uh, you know, alternating uh, sort of camera styles where he's got like multiple cameras on us on the same scene and sort of like is cutting between the two for emphasis. He does like um, uh, dialogue appears on the screen as certain characters say certain words in very tense circumstances so that you as the audience realize like this is absolutely what this person has just said. Um, it's it's so stylistic and it's it really makes you feel the emotion of these characters in these situations, whether it's the rage or whether it's the fear or whether it's the, the joy or the love it's uh, yeah. I mean, this guy, again, I keep saying this, like these directors know how to tell a story and um, you got to think if your brother's Ridley Scott and he makes alien and then he makes blade runner and it's like, okay, this guy can write his own ticket. What else is he going to do? And then, you know, years later he makes gladiator. And then he like, like this is a huge legacy to potentially compete with but tony scott uh you know he has carved out his own name in film history uh you know arguably ridley scott might be a better technical director a lot of people may think that uh but for me tony scott he's a go-to he knows how to make a great movie uh i always have fun when i'm watching them it's like they're many cases they're fast-paced and it's like he's i don't know it's he's I can't say enough good things about him. I just think that he really had uh, this talent for picking great movies. You know, he did Crimson Tide. He did Enemy of the State. He, you know, it's just he's got this fantastic resume. You look down this IMDb page and you're like, these are all great movies. Um, and he uh, he and his brother worked together. They, had a, they have a production company, Free Scott and, or Scott Free, rather. And uh, one of their projects was the TV show Numbers. Uh, about the mathematical genius who helps his FBI brother solve crimes. And although it was a formulaic kind of story of the week, uh, again, he directed some of those episodes and had a hand in the creative process. So, uh, again, he's he's just create, was creative all around. Uh, I think we lost him uh, while he was still in his prime, and uh, that's unfortunate, but he leaves behind a fantastic body of work. Number two, Tony Scott. Wow, I'm really actually really surprised at that one. I didn't. Oh, I, I think you. I think Ridley Scott was a better director than him. Go figure. All right. Uh, so my number two, I got to go with a textbook one here. I do have to, and that's Alfred Hitchcock. So there, there's been a lot of horror movies and action movies and suspense and films and you know mystery and all that kind of stuff, but no one's ever done any of that stuff better than Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, And also two of my favorite films of all time were directed by him, and that's Strangers on a Train and Psycho. Strangers on a Train is just so well done. Technically, it's just well done as a film. It's got a great script, a great plot. Some of the shots in it, when Miriam is killed at the carnival by Bruno, and you see him in the reflection of her glasses after after they fall into the ground, and the stylistic shots of the horses on the carousel, the tennis match where everyone's head turns from side to side, except Bruno, who's just sitting there looking straight ahead, or even the opening shot of the train tracks and their inner crossing. Hitchcock was a master. I'm just going to probably use the word master a million times with him, but he was a master at using the film medium in all these unique ways. And 
The thing is, unfortunately for today's audiences, I think they would watch Hitchcock films and just think it's all kind of ho-hum because it's all been done a million times. But in a lot of those cases, Hitchcock did it first. It's, it's the same argument you can make with Citizen Kane. You know, the, in Citizen Kane, uh, the use of deep focus and cameras, you know, going between metal fence bars and shooting from way below the actors and stuff. It was all new when Orson Welles did it. And and like Hitchcock, Orson Welles was this innovator in film, right? But the thing is, I think now is that we've seen, you know, directors use these tools over and over ever since. So we forget where they come from. But with Hitchcock, I think people remember him only as the master of suspense. But he was the master at camera movement and, and he was the master at film editing and the use of music. And he, he started out directing silent films and then moved into talkies and eventually color films. So he was there for the whole transformation of the medium. And he was at the forefront of using just about every innovation in film at the time. And the thing was that he never strayed from the most important thing about film that we mentioned already, and that's to tell a story. He was a master storyteller. And he was also amazing at using motifs and themes. And he would only put things in his shots that had relevance to the story. And it's not just horror or suspense that he was good at. The chase scenes in North by Northwest and Vertigo, some of the best ever captured on film. And like I say, I know it's a bit of a textbook answer, but Hitchcock was just an amazing, amazing director. And he's number two on my list. Yeah, it's a good pick. And definitely a textbook answer, but uh, I think... Definitely someone who needs to be represented on the list. I kind of feel like my list doesn't hold up to your list once I hear who your top few people are. But again, that's why we do these things, right? Right. Uh, my, my top three are definitely more recent directors, and I, I deliberately tried to not what I felt was going to be step on your toes. Uh, I have a pretty strong inclination of who your number one was going to be from the outset. So I made a point of staying away because mm-hmm. I figured I'll have a chance to talk after you talk. And that's kind of uh, what we do here on the show. Yeah. Anyway. So but, uh, my one, two, three, I definitely wanted newer directors on my list. Um, you know, and obviously Christopher Nolan and Tony Scott, both newer directors, like they were, you know, although they, they worked in the eighties, they had a lot of success in the nineties and the two thousands. And my number one is, uh, is no exception to that. Uh, a newer director it's number one for me is David Fincher. Oh, wow. So <clears throat> I'm just going to read you down his IMDb database before I go into a little bit about him. So this, these movies arguably start and are good and get better as we go down the list. So we start with Alien 3, which, you know, certainly not his best work. Uh, but when you're following Ridley Scott and James Cameron, you got to think you're going to be compared to some pretty, uh, pretty tall uh, history that's come before you. Uh, there were a lot of issues as far as uh, uh, what he wanted to do versus what the studio wanted to do. But as a fan of that franchise and a fan of David Fincher, you go back and watch this one and it's probably better than you remember. Anyway, he does Alien 3. Then he does 7, groundbreaking. Then he does the thriller The Game with Michael Douglas. Uh, a, a often forgotten movie, which I think is very underrated. It was great. Then in 1999, he does Fight Club, another iconic movie. Does Panic Room in 2002, a little bit of a dip, but still pretty good. He does Zodiac in 2007, awesome. He does A Curious Case of Benjamin Button with Brad Pitt aging backwards in 2008. Then he does The Social Network in 2010, arguably the most important movie of the last decade. And then in 2011, he does Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is an English 
uh, update and and remake of the uh, the original foreign language film based on the book. Um, again, with an all star cast, and it, again, fantastic film. Then he doesn't do a new movie for a while. Instead, he goes into television. He does House of Cards, which, despite what we now know about Kevin Spacey at the time, was like unlike anything else that had come out before. And again, that's another one that had been a British series that was updated for an American audience using American politics. But, you know, again, that that show brought things to an audience that had never been done before. And then more recently, he did the Mindhunter series uh, in 2017. Um, so again, this this body of work is outstanding. He's got so let's go into a little bit of his background here. So he uh, he started like a couple of the other directors on my list by doing television commercials. That's where he cut his teeth. And he was sort of thrust into the forefront when he did a television commercial for the American Cancer Society that depicted a fetus smoking a cigarette and coughing. And it was so shocking and revolutionary. And it was unlike anything that had been aired before. It was this PSA. It got people talking. It it raised awareness for this issue, unlike anything that had been done before. Uh, Some people were outraged. Some people were were flabbergasted. They were like, how did you do that? It, It was, again, it opened doors for him. Then in 1990... He so he's been he starts doing uh, well not starts but he had been doing music videos between 1984 and 1993 he did 53 music videos for all sorts of popular artists in 1990 he does a music video for George Michael's song Freedom 90 so I, there, I just started watching a documentary about George Michael and the whole thing with this album was when George Michael produced it and put it out he said I've done the music I'm not touring. I'm not promoting. I don't want my face on the cover of the album. I'm not going to appear in the music videos. You wanted me to produce music. I produce music. Here you go, studio. Do whatever the hell you want with it. Um, And so Fincher came in to do this video. And with George Michael's input, because obviously George Michael, although he wasn't going to be in it, he wanted to have some creative say in it. They they took the five supermodels that were on the cover of, I think it was Vogue at the time. They were the, the five top highest paid, most famous uh, supermodels and hit these five supermodels in the video singing the lyrics to this freedom song, which, um, again, just the way the video was shot, it was unlike anything that we had seen before. And it got a ton of fantastic press. Um, a couple of years later, he does the, uh, Madonna videos for express yourself and Vogue. Again, this is after Madonna's done like her, her, Blonde Ambition Tour and her sex book. And it's like, again, she's cutting edge. She's the top of the pops. And here's Fincher working with these musicians to produce these iconic videos. And it, it, it's got his style. He's he's like the, the modern master of like the, the film noir. He puts out seven, a movie about a, uh, you know, a serial killer who follows the seven deadly sins. Um, you know, he's got Fight Club about uh, with, you know, Brad Pitt and Ed Norton, where they're the underground boxing. And it's it's this social commentary on capitalism. And, uh, you know, then he does uh, The Social Network in 2010, which arguably is ju- just, quote unquote, just a biopic about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. But I think it's more than that. It's 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 almost like documenting an important cultural change this is this is documenting uh although a little bit sensationalized facebook and what it's become and how social media is has become so important and changes the way that things happen i mean just look at what's happening in the world right now and thanks to social media uh um you know people are aware of what's happening um 
he's he's got his own style. He, he seems to always be at the the forefront of telling these interesting stories in these interesting ways. He's got this vision, and but he's really got this eye for like sort of these dark noir style uh, stories. And um, yeah, he's he's without a doubt my number one. You tell me David Fincher has some new movie coming out. I'm first in line. I don't need to see his trailer. I don't need to know what it's about. I don't need to know who's in it. Although arguably he tends to work with a lot of the same people, so it's probably going to have Brad Pitt uh, or someone else of that caliber. David Fincher, my number one. All right. Well, there you go. I mentioned uh, um, an honorable mention before with John Hughes. Two other ones I just want to throw out real quick. One is Tim Burton. And the reason I want to throw Tim Burton out there is because when you watch a Tim Burton film, you know it's a Tim Burton film. Absolutely. It's, it's just, in, it's not mistakable. You can just tell that's that's him. And I think there's something to be said for that. It's almost like if you listen to a couple notes of a song, of a ZZ Top song, for example, you know it's, you know it's ZZ Top. Like they just have that style. Tim Burton is like that. He just has this style about him. You watch it, even just watch a little bit. You're like, yeah, that's Tim Burton. So, I mean, there's something to be said for that. And the other one I want to mention is Martin Scorsese. You know, he doesn't make my number one, um, but I think he's he's an important filmmaker. I don't think he's always been consistent over the years, but I think he, he is important. But my number one, I mentioned one of the most important things about Hitchcock was that he was a master storyteller. And while he was good, the best storyteller in the history of cinema is and always will be Steven Spielberg. He's the greatest director that's ever lived. I agree. 100% uh, I, agree. Yeah. I, and, and you left it off your list, obviously. I knew he would be your number in one. In anticipation I, that I, I would. I thought, I'm yeah. going to just put on newer artists. I knew you were almost Spielberg, and I have no arguments with this pick whatsoever. Well, the thing is, I always mention that I don't have a favorite movie. I have three favorite movies. Star Wars, Jaws, and Raiders of the Lost Ark are my three favorite movies, and they're interchangeable. But the thing is, Spielberg directed two of those films. Yep. And for me, the best movies to ever come out of Hollywood all came out as a result of the film school generation, which is basically the group of directors that came to prominence in the 1970s. They were all young, they had beards, and they almost all went to film school. Before that, there were no film schools. It was, film was like a, a new medium, you know? There was no formal study of it. There was no formal training for a lot of early directors. A lot of directors just operated within the, the studio system. So they were responsible for churning out studio pictures, you know, musicals and westerns and that kind of thing. And then along came these brash young directors. And not only did they change Hollywood, but they changed the world. There was Brian De Palma, George Lucas, John Milius, Martin Scorsese, but the best of all of them was Spielberg. And funny enough, he was the only one of that group that didn't go to film school. He was rejected from USC film school three times. Uh, he started off working in television. He directed the made-for-TV movie Duel with Dennis Weaver. And yep. that got him a chance to make his first Hollywood movie, which was The Sugarland Express with Duel de Haan in 1974. But obviously, when he made Jaws, it, it literally changed the world. For the first time ever, there was this idea of a blockbuster film. People literally lined up around the block just to get in to see the movie. And when that came out, he was off to the races. He made some of the greatest movies of all time. E.T., Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan. And of course, as I mentioned, two of my favorite movies of all time, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And George Lucas actually wanted him to direct Return of the Jedi. Right. But, but he couldn't do it. Not because he, he didn't want to do it. He wasn't allowed to do it 
Because Lucas didn't use opening credits when he made Star Wars, and it pissed off the Directors Guild of America. They fined him. And then when he made Empire Strikes Back, he again went with the opening crawl, no opening credits. And so the Directors Guild of America kicked him out. They kicked him out of the guild. So when he went to make Jedi, he wanted to use Spielberg, but Spielberg was a member of the Directors Guild, and they wouldn't let him do it. And so that's why uh, Lucas had to go to the UK to get Richard Marquand to direct the movie. But anyway, even without Return of the Jedi, Steven Spielberg, greatest director that's ever lived. He's the greatest director that ever will live. He's number one on my list. Yeah, that, that's I, I agree with everything you've said. Uh, there is a really good documentary about Steven Spielberg that came out I'll say about a year ago. Uh, and it was in heavy rotation on like HBO or one of the pay channels. So I, I remember watching that and learning a lot more about his early his early life, because really, for me, I I mean, I was born in the early 70s, so I didn't see Jaws in the theater. I didn't see Close Encounters of the Third Kind of the theater. I think the first Spielberg movie I saw in the theater would have been Raiders and or E.T. Uh, and I definitely saw both of those in the theater. But back then they used to re-release movies, remember? So, yes, yeah, a couple it, it was years one later. Of those yep. two, one of those two. I think probably Raiders was first. So it was it was many years later that I saw Jaws. It was many years later I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I didn't really know much about him. Like as a youngster, when I when I finally understood what a director's part of a, of a movie was, I was much older and was not familiar with his backstory and how he came into you know, how he came into power, how he became who he was. Uh, it wasn't until much later that I learned all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great story. Uh, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it was a time where a lot of those young film directors, uh, you know, they really had to make names for themselves quickly. And yeah, you, you do jaws at that, that point in your life and you write your own ticket from then on in, like there's no looking back. And that's not to say that Spielberg's had success every single time he's, he's had an outing. He has had a tremendous amount of success. No no, no doubt about that, but he's had some bummers along the way. Oh sure. 1941 Uh, and always and stuff like that. You know? Well, and even more, some of his more recent work I yep. found uh, as a film goer, I'm just being like, not really that interested. I, I didn't really find it that that inter- either the topic didn't interest me or the execution. Like he did the one about the giant, big friendly giant BFG, I think it was called or something. And I was like, huh, what's this all about? Um, just couldn't get into it. Like, uh, did he do the post that was out a few years ago? Was that him? Yeah, I think a- I think he directed it. I think he directed it as yeah. well. And it was like. It was a terrible and, movie. And he directed Ready Player One, which you liked. You nominated for this podcast. I didn't, I liked. I didn't like. Um, I mean, and Minority Report, again, I liked, but I know was not a big hit. Um, so, you know, he's he's definitely had a few missteps along the way. Uh, I mean, not again, a misstep for Steven Spielberg is probably better than most other directors on their best day. Um, and when, you're, when your benchmark is Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Jurassic Park, it's hard to hit that peak every time after that it's it's just going to be difficult um you're always going to be compared to to your best work um but even though it may not live up to that level of expectation it it's still got a lot to like about it so uh yeah there's spielberg absolutely i agree 100 percent. best living director best director arguably best director of all time um and uh, I, I don't think any of the other directors that were on either of our lists are as good as Spielberg. I think some of them will bring different things to their movies. Like I think Cameron uh, brings a lot of other kind of things to his movies that Spielberg doesn't, but you know, you don't want every director to be the same. That's boring. You want different kinds of like, you imagine Tarantino and Spielberg 
both directing the same movie. Like those are going to be very different movies because they have a very different styles of telling a story. But yeah, we, we refer to Raiders as one of the all time greatest movies, one of the all time greatest directed movies. Like we I've said it many times in this podcast, that's a master's class on how to make a movie. It it's good with the pacing. It's good with the stories. You know, it's like, it really, he really was at the absolute top of his game when he made the first, the first Indiana Jones movie. No doubt about it. Nope. I agree. You're not going to get any argument out of me. Nope. All right, so that's our list of directors. Time now to have some fun with Caveman. All right, there is an old joke in Hollywood that says that every actor will always tell you that he enjoys acting, but they really want to direct, right? And many have. So, Derek, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the name of an actor, and you tell me if they've ever directed a movie. That's it. Okay. Now, actually, there's going to be a little bit more. Because I'm okay. also going to ask you if they've ever directed themselves in a movie. Oh, okay. And bonus points are available here, especially if, if I you can name, the, name the movie. Okay. Okay. So we're going to start yeah. with some easy ones. Okay. Keep in my mind that I'm like, okay, if these are on the list. I'm good. Okay, go. All right. So here's one. Ben Affleck. Has Ben yes. Affleck ever directed a movie? Yes, he has. Yes, he's he has. directed himself in Argo. Yes, he directed himself in Argo, in the town, and Gone Baby Gone. So very good. All there right. Go. Warren Beatty. Has Warren Beatty, the actor, ever directed a film? He absolutely has. Okay. And you're right. Has he ever directed himself? Uh, I think he directed Bugsy, which I know he was in. No, he did not direct Bugsy. But he, he, he in did, Reds? He did direct Reds, Heaven Can Wait, Dick Tracy, and Bullworth. Oh, and I mentioned All four of which he appeared. On a podcast a few weeks ago. Yes, you did. All right. Harrison Ford. Did Harrison Ford ever direct a film? No. No, he did not. You are correct. All right. Ron Howard, the actor. Absolutely, yes. It's an easy one. But That's a really easy one. I don't know if he's been. Has Ron movies. Howard. Has Ron okay, Howard hold on. Ever, let me think. Let me think. Has he ever directed so, himself? He was not in Apollo. He was not in he was not Apollo 13. He was not in Cocoon. I'm gonna think that as he got older, he did not put himself. It would have been something early. No, I, I know he puts his brother in every movie. I'm gonna say no, he's never been in his own movie. His first film in 1977 was Grand Theft Auto, starring Ron Howard. Oh. Yeah, he directed himself. All right. Dustin Hoffman. Has Dustin Hoffman, the actor, ever directed a film? Uh I'm gonna say no. He actually did. He directed a movie called Quartet in 2012, but he was not in it, so he did not direct himself. It was like Maggie Smith and Billy Connolly. So, okay. Right. John Voight, the actor turned mega cultist. Did he ever direct a film? No, I don't think so. No, he did not. No, you're right. All right. How about Jodie Foster? Jodie Foster? Yes, yes oh. she's definitely directed. She has directed. Has oh, she ever directed she, herself? I know she was in the movie Nell, and I want to say she directed that. I'm going to say yes. Uh, you are correct, but it was Little Man Tate. Little Man Tate. That, okay. she, that she directed herself in. All right. What about George Clooney? Has George Clooney ever directed a film? Yes. He did. Uh, yeah. Good night and good luck or good like. He definitely directed. Yes. Did he direct himself ever? Oh, uh, yeah. I think he was in that movie. That was, was that was called? Good night. Good luck and good night. It was the. So uh, close. Yeah, it was. I, I'm not going to get it. Good night and good luck or something. Yes, you got it. It's good night. Oh, is that what it's luck. called? Yes, and he was in it. He was also he also directed himself in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Oh yeah, Leatherheads, The Ides of March, and The Monuments Men. 
Oh, I haven't seen Monuments yeah. Men. That was about the art thefts in the, during the war. Yeah. yeah. All right, Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner, yes. direct? Yep. Yes, he yep. did. Did he ever direct himself? Sure did, all the way to an Oscar. For yep. directing. Yep. All three times he's directed, he's Dances been in the with movies. Wolves, The Postman. And Open Draft Range. Day, maybe? Open Range. Range, okay. Yeah. All right, Natalie Portman. Has Natalie Portman ever directed a film? Uh, I want to say yes. I want to say yes, but I'm going to say no. Yes, she did direct a movie. Do you think she ever directed herself? Probably. Yes, she did. She directed herself in A Tale of Love and Darkness. Sure. Funny enough, sure. she she also uh, directed New York, I Love You. She directed a segment of that movie, but uh, she was in the movie, but she did not appear in the segment that she directed. Funny enough. Sure. Okay, Derek, we yes. all know Woody Allen has directed movies and he's directed himself many times. Yep. Including his best film, Annie Hall, which I just love. But what about his co-star from that film, Diane Keaton? Has she ever directed a film? Well, I think if she wanted to, she probably has, because she certainly ha- has or had the clout. Uh, she doesn't... Uh, I'm going to say that that's probably not something she has a desire to do. I'm going to say no. Unfortunately, yes, she yeah, did direct a film. That being said, do you think she ever directed herself in a movie? No. She did. She directed herself in Hanging Up in 2000. Never heard of it. Oh, well. Okay, Marlon Brando. Do you think Marlon Brando ever directed a film? I know he was apparently a real pain in the ass to work with, so I'm going to say no. Nobody gave him that opportunity. He actually did direct one film in 1961. He directed One-Eyed Jacks, and funny enough, he was in it, too. Yeah. All right. Richard Dreyfuss. Richard Dreyfuss ever direct a movie? No. You are correct. He never has never directed a film. He was in a ton of movies. I actually just watched a movie with him called The Astronaut. Oh. It, I want to say it was Canadian, where he plays like a 60-something-year-old retiree, and there's like a, a space flight for regular people. Just sign up and whatever, and, and they pick him, and he becomes one of the 10 people to go on this thing. And it's a story about a grandfather and his grandson. And it was actually pretty good. Hmm. The only anyway. Canadian movie I ever remember him doing was The Apprenticeship, Apprenticeship of, of Daddy, Daddy Kravitz. Kravitz. Yep, yeah. right before Jaws. Okay, last one. Got Sylvester Stallone. Did Sylvester yes. Stallone ever direct a film? He sure did. He directed Staying Alive. <laughs> he sure did, yes. The sequel to Let Saturday Night Fever. Let his brother write the songs. Yes, his brother Frank Stallone wrote the songs. Did Sylvester Stallone, though, ever direct himself? Did he direct Rocky? I think he might have directed Rocky. I'm going to say yes. He did not direct Rocky. Damn it. But he did direct, he direct Rocky himself? Two, Rocky Three, Rocky Four, Rocky Balboa. He directed Rambo, The Expendables, all of which he was in. Not to mention Paradise Alley back in 1978, uh, starring him. No way, Paradise Alley. Yeah, yeah he directed that too with himself in it. <laughs> Never heard of it. Jeez, good, pretty good job. Pretty good job. It's yeah. like, like I said, well, act- some of them are pretty obvious. The yeah. other ones was like uh, a little harder. Know, maybe no. Yeah, uh, I wanted to put you so. into the test. So, yep. All right. So next episode, it's my turn to pick a movie for us to go back. Uh, we always go back to Gen X. Is it me. an eighties comedy, Chris? Uh, I don't always give you eighties comedies. Last one I gave I you was War Games, right? So um, made me laugh. <laughs> what's that? Made me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think. I think what we're going to do is we're going to go back 
Oh, what do I want to do this week? I think we want to go back to 1983. Just mentioned uh, Canadian there. Uh, we're going to go back to 1983. And we're going to watch a Canadian film from 1983, Strange Brew. Oh, nice. <laughs> so there's a comedy for you from the 80s. And it's Canadian. So we're going to watch Strange Brew with the McKenzie Brothers from SETV. And we're going to come back and we're going to review that next time. Are you up for the challenge, my friend? I am. I, I haven't seen Strange Brew in... 15 20 years easy oh god so it's been it'll be a, it'll be, we'll see how it does and does i do remember that there's like they drink out of the stubby beer bottles which yep. i'm sure will be hilarious Very dated. Yep. Yep. yeah so it should be good like i say i had a couple teed up here and i wasn't sure and wanted to go with that one so that's what we're gonna do so if you want to reach out to uh to us on twitter you'll find uh derek on uh twitter at amaron underscore dm and of course i'm there at C. McBrien and popcozierworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. In the meantime, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 